The Ask Anatomist podcast is co-sponsored by the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, and Health Sciences at Monash University and by the American Association for Anatomy. Welcome to Ask Anatomist, a podcast for the medically curious. Today's episode, do you have a gut feeling? I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Lazarus, an associate professor in the Center for Human Anatomy Education in the Faculty of Medicine, Nursing, and Health Sciences at Monash University. Just before we get started, I want to remind our audience that the following episode is for informational and educational purposes only. Discussions that take place do not replace consultation with your medical health professional nor the prescriptions provided by them. Please consult a medical professional before adapting to your own circumstance anything you hear on this podcast. Hello, listeners. Today we're going to be talking about inflammatory bowel disease, or IBD. We often take for granted that our body, more specifically our gastrointestinal tract, digests the food we eat without us even noticing. However, there are some diseases like IBD which affect our GIT, or gastrointestinal tract and subsequently can have a huge impact on our day-to-day life. I have a great interdisciplinary team to talk about this interesting topic. Would you like to take a moment to introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Dr. Sonia McEwen, and I'm an academic in the Department of Anatomy and Developmental Biology at Monash. Hi, I'm Ed Giles. I'm a consultant pediatric gastroenterologist and lead for inflammatory bowel disease at Monash Children's Hospital and also do research into inflammatory bowel disease. G'day there, my name is Chris and I am an interested community member. Let's start off with the basics. What exactly is the gastrointestinal tract? So the gut or digestive tract extends all the way from the oral cavity, which is what we're using to talk about this podcast today, down to the anal canal and anus. The whole digestive tract originated as a single tube. And if you were to unravel it from the top or the esophagus to the end or anus and hold it, it would be roughly equivalent to you holding this on the roof of a second-story house. Interestingly, a koala's gut system is about half this length. There are different regions of the digestive system, both anatomically and functionally. Let's imagine we're a bolus or ball of food heading into the digestive tract, following some digestion and chewing or mastication. I would be headed into the esophagus. Here, I have muscular layers which, sort of like a snake, help push the food through the thoracic region. If there were windows where I was traveling, I would look out and be able to see the trachea or windpipe in front of me, and on a map, I would see the heart also in front and the lungs on either side of me. I would then travel via the esophagus through a tunnel in the diaphragm, roughly at the level of the 10th thoracic vertebra. Next, I would head into the foregut region, which includes the stomach. The stomach wall releases acid for digestion and enzymes, or almost special scissors designed to break down food, to their basic building blocks or bricks so that they can make something new and useful like proteins and cells. Then I have to move these building blocks into a new location where they can be upcycled and built into something useful. After exiting the stomach, I then begin my travels towards the midgut region, specifically the small intestine of the digestive tract. The transition between the foregut and midgut occurs at the duodenum, or at least that's how we say it in American. Australians have duodenums, as do their koalas. From the duodenum, or the first part of the small intestine, I'm going to travel through two additional parts of the small intestine we'll discuss a little bit more later. 
Then I'm going to travel into a structure known as the large intestine. From the large intestine, the final part of the large intestine is known as the rectum. From the rectum, the food that wasn't digested are excreted. Each part of the digestive system has different specialized functions. For instance, the ileum, which is part of the small intestine, has a primary function in resorption or collection of the upcycled vitamin B12. This vitamin is essential for building new cells and for nerve function. Thus, problems with absorption in the ileum could lead to symptoms outside the gut. When we hear about bowel disease, which part of the digestive tract are we referring to? The term bowel actually comes from the Latin word botellus, which means sausage. The casings in traditional sausages actually use animal intestines. Thus, the bowel is primarily referring to the intestines, both small and large. The nomenclature or naming of small and large intestines is a little bit of a misnomer, though. They refer primarily to the diameter of the space within these structures, essentially the width of the pipes carrying the food. The small intestine is actually quite long, equivalent to about five average height people end-to-end. It is made up of three parts. The first part is the duodenum or duodenum, which continues on digestion from the stomach with the help of bile provided by your gallbladder, liver, and pancreas. After this, the partially digested food heads to the jejunum, or you could just say the jej in Australia, then ileum, where a lot of these upcycled nutrients are absorbed. Next, the food heads to the larger diameter large intestine. This large intestine, also known as the colon, is much shorter, only equivalent to about the height of one average person. The large intestine helps recycle any leftover water and salts from the food that can't be digested, sort of like corn. If it comes in as corn, it goes out as corn. There are tons of tiny bacteria in this part of the intestine, sometimes referred to as the microbiome, which feed on the parts we can't digest. These bacteria then produce nutrients and vitamins to help us survive. There are five parts to the large intestine, ascending colon, transverse colon, descending colon, sigmoid colon, which is sort of shaped like an S, and the rectum. And clinically, we would consider the proximal part, the near part of the ascending colon, the cecum, where the join to the small intestine is, is a separate part of the join between the small and large intestines. And so there's a really important transition that occurs at the ileocecal junction, and that's the transition from the small intestine to the large intestine. That's right. There's a valve there, actually. The joining between those two parts is not like a sausage. It's really more side to side, and that's very functionally important and can be important in inflammatory bowel disease, as we'll discuss later. What's very interesting is that in addition to the gut's role in food digestion and absorption, It actually has some of the most extensive and the largest number of immune cells in the entire human body. Given that the large intestine and small intestine have very different roles, are they made up of the same cellular structure? And why do they have so many immune cells? Well, the gut, even though it's on the inside of our body, is highly exposed to the external environment. If you think about all the food you eat, also taking in lots of other toxins, and there's lots of bacteria in the gut as well. So across the length of the gut, there's multiple layers. It's actually quite a complicated structure, even though it's just really one big long tube. There's the same basic pattern of layers within the gut, but they vary a bit in terms of the cells that are in there and the types of things in different regions of the gut. The first layer of the gut on the innermost side is called the mucosa. So if you were to look at the gut from the inside layer, the first thing you see is a layer of cells. It's called the epithelium. It's like a very thin skin. In most of the gut, the layer of skin there is only one cell thick, so it's extremely thin. 
but there's a bit of variation along the length. So in the esophagus, the skin is a bit thicker. It has several layers. The epithelium has several roles. One of the most important of these is that it's a barrier. It's protecting the rest of the gut from things that it's exposed to on the outside, like our skin protects our body. So there are a number of different types of cells within the epithelium, and these vary a bit across the regions of the gut as well. And these cells have different functions. There are stem cells or cells that keep proliferating to maintain the number of epithelial cells because those cells are highly exposed to toxins and things like that. There has to be a, a turnover of the cells. There's also a lot of cells that produce mucus to protect the epithelial layer and help form that barrier. And there's cells, of course, in the small intestine that are highly designed to absorb nutrients. And there are a number of different sorts of sensory cells as well that can detect what's going on in the gut and convey that information to the rest of the body, including cells of the nervous system and the immune system. That's a really important point. The scissors that we've been talking about that help with digestion, they also can hurt the cell lining of the gut system. And so there's a high turnover of these cells. You have to replace these cells frequently. And so that's what you're discussing now. That's right. In a number of areas of the gut, including the stomach and the intestines, the epithelium is arranged kind of like hills and valleys. So you have these valleys, which are the crypts or the glands, and that's often where the stem cells reside in the epithelium. They're producing new cells, and the cells then migrate and they move up the hills to the top, and then they're shed into the lumen or the middle of the gut, and that's the way they are replaced continually. Just directly underneath the epithelium is the tissue that's there to support the epithelium. So we call that the lamina propria. It's also considered part of the mucosa. It's a connective tissue. It has a lot of blood vessels in it, lymphatic vessels, also nerves, and quite a lot of different types of immune cells. There's also a layer of muscle there as well called the muscularis mucosa, and that can allow the mucosa to move a little bit and really help it increase contact with food. So underneath the mucosal layer is the submucosa. This layer of tissue contains many cells, including in some regions of the gut, a large accumulations of immune cells, particularly in the distal part of the small intestine called the ileum. And there's also a layer of nervous tissue there as well. So the gut has its own nervous system and it's also affected by the brain as well, but it can function on its own if you were to take away the brain's input to the gut. The things that the nervous system controls mainly is the movement of food along the gut, and also secretions as well. So it's got these little collections of neuronal cell bodies. It's an, like an interconnected network, kind of like fishnet stockings. There's like little groups of them and they're located wrapped around the gut from top to toe. And there's one layer in the submucosal layer called the submucosal plexus. And there's another layer in the next layer out, which is the muscularis externa or the muscle layer of the gut. So the reason we have a, quite a good muscle layer of the gut is you need to move food from one end to the other. It doesn't do it all by itself. So there's two layers of the gut throughout most of it. There's an inner circular layer and there's another layer on the outside that's arranged longitudinally. And together there's a nervous system in between them and that helps coordinate the contraction and relaxation of that muscle to move food from one end to the other. The cells that we've been describing support the multiple functions that the gut tube is responsible for, including protection or a barrier, as well as absorption of nutrients and moving the food through the different systems so that we can digest what we can digest and we excrete what we can't digest. And the final layer of the gut, which is the outside layer from the body in towards the gut, it's the, the layer closest to the rest of the body, it's called the serosa. And it's a layer basically designed to protect the gut and to protect the rest of the tissue from the gut and to separate them. 
So these are all the different layers in the gut, but how do they differ in function as we progress along the gut? There are a number of differences in these layers along the length of the gut. For example, in the stomach, there's a number of specialised epithelial cells, so the innermost layer, that produce acids and also enzymes to help digest the food. And also in the stomach, there is an extra layer of muscle in the muscle layer that is arranged in an oblique fashion that allows for greater mixing of the food. From there, the food will move into the duodenum. In the duodenum, you have specialised cells of the epithelium that will act to neutralise the acid and produce some alkaline substances to prevent the stomach acids from damaging the epithelium of the small intestine. And throughout most of this small intestine, you have several different ways of increasing the surface area to maximise absorption of nutrients. So you have three different ways of doing this. So on the surface of the cells, they have these little things called microvilli, which are kind of like fingers sticking up from the cell. So if you look at your fingers, there's a much greater surface area if you combine it all compared to, say, the rest of your hand. And so on these cells, you have heaps of them, and that increases the surface area. And also, you have projections of the mucosa called villi. These are like small fingers on cells sitting on top of bigger fingers, which are the villi. And then in some regions of the gut, particularly the jejunum, you have these foldings of the submucosa as well, which are like a hand sort of sticking out, and those are called plicae circularis. So those three methods help to maximise the surface area available for absorption. So the small intestine is actually incredibly long, which maximizes the opportunity for absorption. And then histologically, so on a micro level, it also increases the surface area. So the small intestine is perfectly placed for maximizing absorption of nutrients. Yes. In the ileum, which is the last part of the small intestine, there are also large aggregations of immune cells in the submucosal layer. Their name is called payers patches, and there's quite a few of them there. And those are very important in mounting immune responses. Actually, at this junction between the ileum and the cecum, so the small and large intestine, there's an outpocketing at the beginning of the cecum known as the appendix. While we still don't understand the purpose of the appendix, many people have heard of it because of appendicitis. And in the large intestine, you don't have the same foldings and villi and plicae circularis that you do in the small intestine. You still have glands or crypts, so they're still indented. And there are many more goblet cells in the epithelium, producing mucus, which will help lubricate and help the faeces form and exit the gut. Yes, and the mucus also has a very important protective function as the vast majority of the bacteria and other microbes are in the colon. There are many functions associated with the gut, and depending on where you are in the gut, you'll have a different set of cells that help support that function. Now we're going to explore what happens when things go wrong with either the cells or the function of the gut. At the start of this podcast, we started to talk about IBD, or inflammatory bowel disease. What exactly is that, and how does that differ from irritable bowel syndrome, which I've gotten confused before? That's a really good question. So inflammatory bowel disease, IBD, is a condition that largely comprised of Crohn's disease, which some listeners will have heard of, and ulcerative colitis. And there's a rarer condition of overlap, sometimes called IBD unclassified. So these are conditions of inflammation. We don't understand their cause, and we'll discuss that more later. But this is very different from IBS, which again, many people have heard of, irritable bowel syndrome. Many of the symptoms can be quite similar, bowel issues, abdominal pain, these sorts of issues, but the causes are fundamentally different. With IBS, all of our investigations in general are entirely normal, and so the bowel will look normal, 
with a camera to the eye, but also histologically, if you look at the cells, they will look normal. There won't be abnormal amounts of inflammatory cells, abnormalities in the immune cell population. IBS is extremely common, and it's probably a group of disorders which may be related to the movement of the gut in the ways that we've described earlier. For some people, it may be an issue in how they handle their particular microbiome, which we probably won't have time to discuss today. And some people just have a more sensitive gut, which can respond well to simple or sometimes complex dietary interventions. But IBD is a really very different condition. We don't understand IBD very well, but our understanding at the moment is that this is an abnormal immune response in the gut to what would normally be bacteria probably that are around. So we might call these commensal organisms, bacteria that live in our gut normally happily. But for some reason in certain individuals, and there's a genetic preponderance to IBD, seem to trigger an inflammatory response. So it's almost like having allergies, but having allergies in the gut. That's right, but we don't understand what triggers that allergy. And it may be that there are multiple different causes. And of course, IBD is different for different people. But perhaps first we should talk about the difference between Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, because I think that's another issue and they are quite different conditions, although often grouped together. And I think the fundamental difference is anatomical, because Crohn's disease can affect any area of the bowel, from the mouth to the anus, and usually doesn't affect in a continuous way, although the most common area would be in the terminal ileum, the end of the small intestine, whereas ulcerative colitis from its name, you can guess, affects the colon and really starts in the rectum next to the anus and then can affect just a small part but then can affect potentially the whole colon. And so these are one of the main differences. But even at the cellular level, Crohn's disease can affect all layers of the bowel wall and so you have this thickening of bowel and inflammation in immune cells throughout, whereas ulcerative colitis is a mucosal disease. So we heard from Sonia about the mucosal layer, and this is what's affected in ulcerative colitis. So unless you have the very extreme form of ulcerative colitis where you often need your colon removed, the inflammation is limited just to that area nearest the lumen and where the bacteria interact. What are the different symptoms between these two forms of IBD? So the symptoms that you get from inflammatory bowel disease are really determined by the anatomical location of the inflammation. So if you have inflammation of the colon, whether that's caused by ulcerative colitis or indeed Crohn's disease affecting the colon, you will typically get diarrhea. You may get abdominal pain, but often that diarrhea will be bloody. And so this is difficult to ignore, even for stubborn young people that I deal with. If the inflammation affects the small intestine, then this can be much more subtle. And in fact, some patients with limited disease in the terminal ileum may have no symptoms at all. I deal with young people and children and they may only present with a failure of growth due to the effects on absorption but also that inflammation itself can interfere with growth and development. So it really can be very variable and of course there's other areas of the gut that can be affected including rarely issues around the mouth and of course extra intestinal manifestations. So this is inflammatory bowel disease actually presenting with symptoms outside of the gut as well. Inflammatory bowel disease affects the function of the gut. So when we're thinking about the large intestine, the primary role of the large intestine is absorption or regulation of water. So when that goes wrong, you end up with diarrhea or constipation for the other extreme. When we're talking about issues related to the small intestine, which is primarily focused on absorption, 
we see effects in the case of inflammatory bowel disease related to its function, which may be in absorption of important nutrients for growth and support of life. That's exactly right. But on top of that is the immune part or the inflammatory part of inflammatory bowel disease. Because while there's effects on the digestion and the absorption and the movement components of the bowel, the inflammatory burden can also have an effect of itself. And particularly Crohn's disease, which is more of a systemic disorder, where often that inflammation is relatively easily detectable, say, in a blood test, you can detect that that inflammation is really affecting the whole individual, even though it's beginning in the gut. I realise that you said that there's no known cause for it, but what's the current thinking behind what causes it? That's an excellent question and a question a lot of my patients and their families ask me. I think it's important to say it's increasing in its incidence, like a lot of what I would perhaps call Western diseases. And it seems to be related to westernisation, whatever that means. So we now have a situation where there's about one in 200 young Australians who will have inflammatory bowel disease. And also we're seeing an increase in incidence around the world, including in developing countries, when recently it would have been considered very rare. So what is it about Western lifestyle? A lot of focus has been on diet and particularly its influence on the microbiome that we've mentioned a couple of times and particularly the bacteria in the gut. Is it something in the air that we breathe and industrialization? But the honest answer is we just don't know. I've mentioned briefly genetics. There's many genes that marginally increase your risk, but really the predominant risk is environmental. Smoking is known to be a big risk factor for Crohn's disease, but fortunately we're seeing reduced rates of smoking, but that's still a powerful modifier and also of the severity of the disease. So you definitely don't want to smoke if you've got Crohn's disease. But other than that, there are very few known risk factors. One of great interest is that if you have antibiotics early in your life, in particular in the first year of your life, that significantly increases your risk of developing IBD in adulthood. That may be modulating your microbiome or it may be to do with infections and different sorts of infections. Because conversely, if you grow up on a farm, your risk of developing IBD is lower as is your risk of developing asthma and some other conditions. Is that partly related to the impact possibly of the microbiome on the developing immune system? So that's a question a lot of people are trying to answer right now, and I think it's a good theory. What we do know is that your microbiome is not stable for the first two years of life, and we also know that there's this integral involvement between particularly the bacteria but other microorganisms in the gut and the developing immune system. So it's a very attractive theory, but difficult to prove, particularly in a condition that most commonly presents in your 20s, to show that cause and effect over that period of time. What are the actual statistics around the prevalence of IBD? So as I mentioned, about 1 in 200 young Australians have a form of IBD. Crohn's disease is more common than ulcerative colitis. Of course, because it's a lifelong condition at the moment with no cure, once you have it, you have it forever. I deal with children and young people, and they're about between 10 and 15% of patients with IBD will be diagnosed in childhood. But we're seeing an increasing burden of disease in older people because they're going to have it all their lives. Around the world, it's much less common, but we are starting to see increasing numbers in China and India and other places around the world. Interestingly as well, genetics plays a small part. If you're an identical twin and you have Crohn's disease, your identical twin has a between a 30 to 40% chance of getting Crohn's. 
But obviously that's a combination of environment and genetics. Ulcerative colitis less so, probably only about 15%. So these are risk factors, but genetics is not a strong risk factor. There are conditions that I deal with. Sometimes children have what's called very early onset IBD and there are more unusual types of IBD. They can occasionally be monogenic conditions. So these are single gene mutations that can mimic inflammatory bowel disease. But they are not, in my opinion, actually inflammatory bowel disease. But you will see damage. You will see inflammation. So you'll see symptoms that are likened, but the cause isn't inflammatory. It's actually like a gene. Well, it is inflammatory, but the origin isn't. Correct, correct. And so it it becomes a rather semantic argument as to whether this is IBD or not. But certainly it's very different from the vast numbers of true IBD patients that we might see. But these children may, for example, need a bone marrow or stem cell transplant as a treatment. But that's very rare. There are good studies that show that if you're born overseas in a low-incidence country, the age at which you move to a Western country will determine your risk of developing inflammatory bowel disease. That is to say, if you move as an infant, you'll have the same risk as an Australian, whereas if you move as an adult, you'll keep the risk of the country that you came from. And if you move in between, it's an in-between risk. How is someone diagnosed with IBD? The pathway to diagnosis can be long for some people because the symptoms can mimic IBS. They may be minimal, so it can be difficult. The end of the line for most patients will be a colonoscopy and usually, particularly in young people, will perform a gastroscopy, so look with a camera from the top and the bottom, but it's really the colonoscopy that's often the final diagnostic test. However, the diagnosis is really a combination of clinical factors, blood test results, stool test results, the macroscopic findings of the scope that we see, also the histological findings and often in direct discussion with the expert histopathologists to really make this determination. Because sometimes it is difficult, and also sometimes it can be difficult to differentiate Crohn's disease from ulcerative colitis. And these differences can have importance to ongoing management, particularly at the severe end of the disease. When you're doing these tests, what are the findings that are the most important that you see under the microscope? This is an inflammatory condition, so really mostly we're looking at inflammatory infiltrates. I think it's important to mention that the gut, particularly the colon, is under a constant state of inflammation. And this is sometimes called homeostasis, but this is this constant interaction with the microbiota. So there are always immune cells present in the gut. So it can sometimes be difficult to determine is this an abnormal number or not. But in most cases, it's, it's fairly obvious. And the increase in immune cells is obvious. The types of immune cells changes. And also, those cells alter the anatomy at a histological, at a microscopic level, in the sense that you get what we'd call crypt distortion. So we talked about those valleys of the mucosa. They become altered, particularly in ulcerative colitis. And you often get a loss of goblet cells, which are the mucus-producing cells. Because the cells are turning over so quickly, they actually don't have enough time to differentiate successfully enough to become the specialised sorts of cells that they're trying to do. The body's really just trying to keep the barrier function going as well as it can. And in severe cases, you actually get loss of that function with true ulcers and a complete loss of that barrier. And that's predominantly in ulcerative colitis. But you get similar situation with Crohn's disease. But of course, as I mentioned, that's what we would call a transmural 
So the inflammatory infiltrate goes across all layers of the bowel and can affect the way the bowel behaves and is shaped. And the end point of particularly Crohn's disease can be thickening of the bowel wall to the point of a narrowing or what we would call a stricture or obstruction. And that will often require surgery at that point. In the case of IBD, histologically, you get anatomical changes and you also get gross pathological changes that sometimes require surgical interventions. That's exactly right. But we hope with our interventions that we can prevent some of those complications and heal the bowel. With the case of the strictures, are they sometimes reversible, sometimes not? This is just me asking. For a friend? They actually are for a friend because I have a friend that just went through this. So So strictures in inflammatory bowel disease are more common in Crohn's disease, although they can occur in ulcerative colitis after a long period of time. But this is to do with the fact that the inflammation is throughout the whole bowel and then you get thickening of the muscular layers that we heard about from Sonia. Our treatments are largely targeted at the immune cells and we can, by and large, with many patients, treat that appropriately. But once the damage has caused fibrosis, and actually probably what we now think is not so much fibrosis but is thickening of the muscle itself, that is much more difficult and we really don't have drugs that target those cell types. So if the narrowing is to do with immune cell infiltrate, we can often deal with it. If not, you may be able to open up a stricture with an endoscope, but quite often you're looking at surgery, which hopefully can be a limited resection of a small part of the bowel. So in Crohn's disease, do you often see more changes perhaps affecting the nervous system because of that transmural effect on the gut? You would think so. I think in practice, you get a bit more pain. I think with ulcerative colitis, the symptoms are often very dramatic because you have bloody diarrhea and that has its own cause of distress. But I think that perhaps somewhat surprisingly with Crohn's disease, you do get diarrhea, but really apart from that, the effect on the function in terms of the movement of the bowel is not that obvious apart from when you really get narrowing and then you can get sort of functional obstruction. So it doesn't appear to have that much direct influence on the enteric nervous system. Given that you're looking for inflammation markers, does that mean you would use an anti-inflammatory to help treat patients with IBD? That's exactly right. There is a slight difference between ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, although many of the treatments end up being similar, particularly at the more severe end of the spectrum. But to take ulcerative colitis, we often start with the milder treatments, which are 5-aminosalicylic acid, so aspirin-derived drugs that work topically on the mucosa to try and reduce inflammation. The vast majority of our other treatments for both ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease target the immune system more directly. So these are so-called immunomodulators, and these can be tablets or other drugs given intravenously or indirectly that target the immune system in either gross ways or quite targeted ways. So in the oldest form, we still use a lot of prednisolone or steroids to gain control, but unfortunately the side effects really mean they're not a long-term option for our patients, particularly the younger ones. And now we have access to more targeted, often biological therapies that target particular proteins that we know are important in the inflammatory pathway, and we can target those directly. And these are, by and large, extremely effective, although may lose efficacy over time, which can be very disappointing, obviously, for patients. So it's still a huge burden. And of course, these drugs are often very expensive as well for society. 
Interestingly, in Crohn's disease, particularly in children and increasingly in adults, there is a dietary therapy that is effective in reducing inflammation. It's quite an extreme diet where you remove all whole food for six or eight weeks. It's a completely liquid diet. When this was begun and I worked in the laboratory where this treatment was started, it was initially a sort of amino acid-based, completely broken down formula. And it was thought that if you completely simplified the food going in, that that would fix the disease. And indeed it did. But interestingly, over time, as we've made it more complex and now it's whole protein based, it still works just as effectively. So our understanding of what's the cause is not clear. And equally, we used to, and still to a certain extent, slowly reintroduce foods. It's not straight away after it ends, you go back to a normal diet. And we thought that we would understand particular foods might be driving disease with individuals. But we really haven't found that. It seems to be only that removing all foods does this. And I should add that while this is a very effective treatment for Crohn's disease, not for ulcerative colitis, it may not be the same as what's the cause. So just because a treatment works to heal inflammation, it may not necessarily be the same process that's setting you up to have that condition. And I think we get very confused in the sorts of diets that might contribute to an increased risk of IBD versus the sorts of foods that might work to reduce inflammation. So while a certain diet may help once you have IBD, it's not necessarily indicative that a certain diet led to IBD. That's exactly right. And there's a lot of interest in the IBD space about different diets that might be treatments, etc. And there are some good trials in this space. But at the moment, apart from this, what's still largely a pediatric, a childhood treatment that some adults are using, but is quite extreme, there isn't really any other diet that we can say confidently will either prevent IBD or is a good treatment in the medium or long term for IBD. And it's very well studied for really over 20 years that this definitely targets inflammation. It heals the bowel. It is effective, but we do not understand why this works. But it's further evidence, I suppose, that there is something in the perhaps microbiome or certainly that interaction between what's going into your gut and your immune system that when it goes wrong can lead to inflammation. These drugs that we're talking about, they don't specifically target inflammation of the gut. They actually modulate immune cells throughout the body. That's exactly right. And so we obviously have to be careful that we're not giving too many off-target effects. And clearly, one of the main concerns is the risk of infection when we're using these drugs. Fortunately, that isn't a major problem with most of the drugs that we use, although we obviously counsel patients appropriately. What's often the case in patients with inflammatory bowel disease who require these medications is that they have such a large burden of inflammation that we're probably correcting the balance rather than, you know, wiping out significant parts of their immune system. But it is an important consideration, and that's why we always have to think very carefully before going to the next level of treatment with any of our patients. You mentioned all this damage and inflammation. Does that completely disappear with treatment? So that's the goal. So historically, and when I started, we really were just focusing on making people feel better with our drugs so they could go about their normal lives. And then with children, ensuring that they grow adequately and go through puberty and achieve their potential. We're understanding now that really, if we want good long-term outcomes for our patients with IBD, we actually need to look deeper and try and heal the bowel with the drugs that we're using, balancing that against the risks of the immune-suppressing drugs that we use. 
Nevertheless, we are really aiming to heal the bowel. And so we are looking either with colonoscopies or sometimes now non-invasive tests of inflammation in the stool that we use a lot of to see if we've healed the bowel and really trying to at least optimise our treatments to try and achieve that goal, knowing that patients will do better. What's still a bit controversial is how hard do we have to push? We know we want the bowel to look good, but does that mean look good with the eye through a colonoscope or does that mean look good to a pathologist who's looking under a microscope? So really, are we trying to get microscopic healing? And a lot of people think that we are, but we're not really sure. And as I've mentioned, we are talking about serious medications and all the rest of it. So we really need more evidence to know what the benefits are for this really deep healing that we sometimes achieve. So once everything's looking okay in the bowel, presumably the people are feeling better too, right? Yeah, in the majority of times that's correct. But symptoms, particularly with Crohn's disease, don't always correlate with the degree of inflammation. And certainly patients with IBD are much more likely to have IBS, so their gut will be more sensitive. So sometimes, indeed, patients still have significant symptoms, but by all the measures that we can look at, it appears that their IBD is under control. And this can be difficult, but by and large, if we heal the bowel, people are back to a normal life. And importantly, I think I should add, is this is a relatively common condition with a huge spectrum of disease, as we've discussed, and severity. But the vast majority of people with IBD live perfectly normal lives. They just need different levels of treatment, occasionally need surgery, but it shouldn't really stop a young person or any person from doing whatever they want to do. What about the case where somebody winds up living without treatment? What are the risks associated with that and even what's their quality of life going to be? So the natural history of IBD will obviously depend on whether it's Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis and where the inflammation is and the degree of inflammation. But uncontrolled inflammation will likely lead to ongoing symptoms. But of course, sometimes there aren't many symptoms. But if there's not many symptoms, it's likely in the terminal ileal Crohn's. And the natural history of that will be eventual narrowing, a stricture, and then obstruction. And then you will end up in hospital and need an operation. You really can't avoid that. And then the natural history of uncontrolled inflammation in the body, certainly in the gut, in my experience, will sadly be cancer. Patients with ulcerative colitis will be at significantly increased risk of colorectal cancer, so a cancer deriving from the epithelium. And Crohn's disease as well, depending on where the disease is, will also increase their risk. And we have reasonably good evidence to demonstrate that if you control the inflammation, you can reduce the risk of cancer back to the background risk. I have a, a lot of young adults who are my patients, and this can be a time of life where you may not want to do whatever anyone tells you to do, whether it's a doctor or a parent or whoever, and they don't want to take the drugs, they don't want to do this. And I say, you know, when they're old enough, that's up to them, but it's not me that suffers the consequences, it's them in the end. I suppose I ask the question because some people might be afraid of surgery. So in the event of surgery and having part of your bowel removed, What's your life going to look like? Can you actually live without part of your bowel? You certainly can. And surgery can be a good option for some patients with IBD. We've mentioned this limited terminal ileal disease, and sometimes you need an operation. If you remove your terminal ileum, you can often be put back together immediately, can only be a few days in hospital sometimes, and your function can be good. You may get a little bit of diarrhea because of the absorptive nature of the terminal ileal, and you have to watch for some of the things like B12 and also folate that we've touched on briefly in terms of the importance of the terminal ileum and its absorptive role. In terms of the colon, ulcerative colitis and also Crohn's disease to a degree, if you remove the colon, essentially we say the disease is cured because it is limited to the colon. 
And we sometimes say a colon's a nice thing to have, but you don't need it. The colon's role is to reabsorb water and really to basically turn the leftover of your food into stool that you can poo out at an appropriate moment. But you can live perfectly well with a bag, a stoma, and a lot of people don't like the idea of that, but it can be a lot better than having a horrendous disease that's not controllable and also being on lots of steroids in particular. Usually those patients require a bag for a period of time and then, particularly with ulcerative colitis, will have further operations where they are reconnected, where you connect the remnant of the rectum to the ileum, the end of the small intestine. This is not a perfect situation. You can't replicate the normal function of the colon, but many people will have reasonable function, if not complete, almost complete continence in terms of being able to go to the bathroom whenever they wish and obviously their disease is still almost entirely gone. But it's not an ideal situation. We try and avoid it. But surgery is sometimes necessary, and usually people can move on with their lives afterwards. We didn't talk much about the rectum specifically, but I would consider that the rectum has a very valuable social role that might be typically undervalued, because when it's amputated, for instance, when you've got a stoma or when you've had a reanastomosis and joining up the gut again together, the rectum has a valuable storage role which you can try and replicate in certain surgeries but it doesn't necessarily quite function exactly the same way as the original rectum. It stores up faeces so that you can go to the bathroom when you choose so you don't have to rush off in the middle of dinner or you can sleep all night and then get up in the morning and go to the bathroom but it also has the ability to detect what's in it whether it's just gas or whether it's something a bit more solid. How we stool is very complicated and not well understood And of course, we have sphincters, so control mechanisms, both internally and externally, so we can sense the need for defecation, but also control it for a socially important moment. And people with IBD, as well as with other disorders, this is affected. And this can really be a major problem for their lives, whether they've got inflammation that's as yet uncontrolled or whether they've had surgery. While many patients with IBD have a very good outlook, it's also a largely hidden condition because people don't like to talk about this stuff. It's clear that the gut has many functions, and each part of the gut is supported both at a cellular level through the histology and also at a gross level through the anatomy. Because of the many functions of the gut, when things go wrong, it's a pretty complicated situation. We do know some things about what happens in inflammatory bowel disease, but there's a lot we don't know, and I want to thank the interdisciplinary team here for discussing this complicated, ambiguous, and interesting topic. Thank you. And as always, relationships matter, at least the anatomical ones. Don't forget to head over to our website, askanatomist.com, for more episodes and links to resources. And follow us on Twitter. So if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, don't hesitate to ask anatomist and use the hashtag anatq.